my mind, Joseph is just about the most amazing character in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Genesis. Just think about the time scale. The book of Genesis covers about 2,400 years of the world's history. 13 chapters out of the 50 are about Joseph. And only about part of his life. The part of his life from age 17 to about 40. And just a little bit right at the end when he was 110. So 13 chapters covering just those, those portions. Well under half of his life. This one man. As far as I'm aware, he's the most comprehensive type of the Lord Jesus Christ in the whole of the Old Testament. At least 200 parallels. So how are we going to deal with Joseph in just two classes? Well, what I'm going to assume is that we have a basic understanding of the, the historical record. We, we know about the life of Joseph, the details of what happened to him. So we're going to look through certain aspects of that life tonight and see what lessons Joseph has for us in particular. And then next week, we're going to look at Joseph as a type. So let's start in Genesis chapter 30, 39. And I want to go through the life of Joseph now fairly quickly and look at what Joseph talked about. So Genesis 39, verse 1, following on from the reading that we've just read, Joseph was brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites which had brought him down thither. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that Yahweh was with him, and that Yahweh made all that he did to prosper in his hand. <coughs> and Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him. And he made him overseer over his house, and over all that he had, and all that he had he put in his hand. And it came to pass from the time he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, that Yahweh blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of Yahweh was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Four times we're told there that Yahweh blessed the house of Potiphar. How did Potiphar know that Yahweh had blessed his house for Joseph's sake? Because Joseph had explained to Potiphar who Yahweh was, the God whom he worshipped, the God of his fathers, and that Yahweh had brought this blessing upon Potiphar. Verse 7. It came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wotteth not what is with me in the house. And he hath committed all that he hath into my hand. There is none greater in this house than I. Neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his, his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That was the problem. If Joseph did that, it would be a sin against God. And Joseph made that absolutely clear to Potiphar's wife. That's why he could not comply with her request. His moral standards came from his God. As a result of this, of course, he was cast into prison. And in due course, the, the jailer made Joseph, put Joseph in charge of the prisoners. And Pharaoh's butler and baker were brought into the prison. And Joseph was charged with them. 
And one morning, the end of verse 6 of chapter 40 says, he looked upon them and they were sad. And he asked Pharaoh's officers that were with him in the ward of his Lord's house, saying, Wherefore look ye so sadly today? And they said unto him, We have dreamed a dream, and there is no interpreter of it. And Joseph said unto them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me them, I pray you. Straight away, no hesitation. This is in God's providence. He can interpret dreams. He is a revealer of secrets. This God whom I worship. And then in chapter 41, when he gets into the presence of Pharaoh, he leaves Pharaoh in no doubt whatsoever. Chapter 41, verse 16. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me to interpret dreams. God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Verse 25. And Joseph said unto Pharaoh, The dream of Pharaoh is one. God hath showed Pharaoh what he is about to do. Verse 28. This is the thing which I have spoken unto Pharaoh, what God is about to do, he showeth unto Pharaoh. Verse 32. And for that the dream was doubled unto Pharaoh twice, it is because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. Pharaoh's left in no doubt. And Pharaoh gets the message. Verse 39. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, Forasmuch as God hath showed thee all this, there is none so discreet and wise as thou art. And he's appointed over all the land of Egypt. And then during the seven years of plenty, two sons are born to Joseph. Chapter 41 and verse 51. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For God, said he, hath made me forget all my toil in my father's house. And the name of the second called he Ephraim. For God hath caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Do you think he kept the names of those boys, or the meanings of the names of those boys, secret? Didn't tell anybody? No. They were a declaration that God was working with Joseph. And then, when his brothers came down, in chapter 42, when he put them in prison for three days and brought them out again, he says to them in verse 18 of chapter 42, This do and live, for I fear God. Literally in the Hebrew, it's, I fear the God. That would have made them sit up and think. This Egyptian who was rough and strange to them, he knows something about the God? Our God? And Joseph's servant knows about the God of, jo of Joseph. We go forward to... Chapter 43. The brothers are back in Egypt now the second time. Very worried about the fact that they found money in their sacks. So they bring the money back and they bring other money down with them. And they explain it all to Joseph's servant. Verse 22 of chapter 43. Another money have we brought down in our hands to buy food. We cannot tell who put our money in our sacks. Look at the response of Joseph's servant. And he said, Shalom, your God, and the God of your father hath given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. How come Joseph's servant understands about the God of their father, Jacob? Joseph had taught him. 
And when he sees Benjamin, verse 29, he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom ye spake unto me? I, the restraint of Joseph is, is amazing. He knows who Benjamin is, but he's still putting up this facade of being the ruler of Egypt. And he said, God be gracious unto thee, my son. He blesses Benjamin in the name of his God. And then when he reveals himself to his brothers in chapter 45, verse 3. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph, doth my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. And Joseph said to his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near. And he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom ye sold into Egypt. Now therefore be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. Verse 7, And God hath sent me before you to preserve a posterity in the earth, to save your lives by great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house. And right at the end, in chapter 50, when the brethren, frightened now that Jacob is dead, that Joseph will have his vengeance. We read in chapter 50, verse 18. And his brethren also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we be thy servants. And Joseph said unto them, Fear not. Am I in the place of God? For as for you, ye thought evil against me. But God meant it unto good, to bring to pass us this day, to save much people alive. And when he came to die, verse 24, Joseph said unto his brethren, I die. And God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land unto the land which he sware to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And jo Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from thence. Right to the end. God is in control. The very last sentence that's recorded of this man, he's still speaking about his God. As he had all through his life, Joseph was always talking about God to everyone that he met, to everyone whom he came into contact, explaining to them who this God was and about his great work. So what about us? Is that what we're like? Are we like Joseph? Always speaking about God to others. In all of this, of course, he's a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Over 60 times in the Gospels, Jesus said, My Father. And when Jesus opened his mouth, he was always speaking his Father's word. And that's something we can all do. However restricted and difficult our lives may be. Turn with me to the first epistle of Peter and chapter 4 to an exhortation that the Apostle Peter wrote which to me is it's a wonderful exhortation but it's very difficult to put it into practice but Joseph did it Joseph is a living example of this 1 Peter 4 verse 11 <coughs> if any man speak let him speak as the oracles of God what Joseph was like. He spoke the word of God, as did the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that what we're like?
brothers and sisters, if we're not, why not? You see, we have a huge advantage over Joseph. When Joseph was 17 years old, he was torn away from his father and the altar and the encampment. And he was torn away from the scriptures which I believe that they had. And for the next 22 years, Joseph had no access to the word of God. Everything he knew about God and his ways and his purpose was in his head from age 17. Every one of us has got a Bible that we can read as often as we like. We should all be reading it. We should be discussing it. We should be asking questions about it. We'll be preaching it as Joseph did. Following this wonderful example. But it wasn't all easy for Joseph. There are passages in the scriptures which are inspired commentaries on the earlier historical records. And they're more valuable than a shelf full of commentaries that we might have at home. And one of them is Psalms 104 to 106. And if you look over these three psalms, they are a commentary on the whole of the Old Testament. From the work of creation in Genesis chapter 1 right through to the time after the exile. We want to focus in on what this commentary says about Joseph in Psalm 105. Psalm 105, verse 17. God sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant. The brothers thought they were getting rid of him. No, no, it was the purpose of God, as, as Joseph himself said, as we've seen. Verse 18. Whose feet they hurt with fetters. He was laid in iron. Nothing in Genesis about that. Genesis tells us that Potiphar put him in the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were bound. It doesn't say that Joseph was bound. But the psalm tells us that he was laid in iron. The margin says that his soul came unto iron. You know, the, the very torment of it entered into his being. The word hurt there is the same word <clears throat> as afflicted in Isaiah 53. And it talks about the Lord Jesus Christ being afflicted. But the verse we want to really look at is verse 19. Until the time that his word came, the word of the Lord tried him. Just close your eyes and try and imagine that you are Joseph. In that Egyptian prison. In the dark. Feeling the pain. With the smell and the hunger that were part of his life sitting there lying there manacled in the dark thinking back to his teen years with his father and thinking back to those dreams those dreams of his brethren bowing down before him in this life and that dream of his father and his mother and his immortal brethren bowing down to him in the kingdom how could this come to pass? Did he even dream the dreams? You ever had the experience when, when you yourself are dreaming and you say to yourself, this isn't a dream, this is real. And, and you turn to somebody beside you and say, I'm not dreaming, am I? And they say, no you're not, this is real. And then you wake up and it was a dream. I've had that. <laughs> but imagine Joseph, you know, did I dream those dreams? 
or am I dreaming that I dream them? How could God possibly bring about the fulfilment of those dreams from here? And that was the trial to Joseph as he lay there for we don't know how long in that prison, in that darkness, in that pain, in that smell, with that hunger. Those dreams, those dreams, those dreams. Had God spoken to him? Would God fulfill his word? until that one morning when the butler and the baker who were in his charge were of a sad countenance and Joseph said why? And they said well we've dreamed and God gave to Joseph the interpretation of those dreams and within three days they were fulfilled the baker was hanged and the butler was restored and Joseph knew then the hand of God was with him in the prison it still took a while because the butler forgot him. But eventually the prison door was opened and Joseph was brought out. And in due course of time, the first dream was fulfilled. And the second one will be. So, how about us, brothers and sisters? Does the word of God try us? Turn with me to Ezekiel 38. Now you might think, what has Ezekiel 38 got to do with Joseph? But this is a trial that we might be undergoing at this moment from the Word of God. Ezekiel 38, the prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal, Gog, Bochart in his history in about 1640 said, Rosh is the earliest name under which historians make mention of the name of Russia. And he identified Meshach with Moscow and Tubal with Tobolsk. <coughs> Who's the current ruler in that part of the world at the moment? A man called Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. Do you know what Vladimir means? It means the ruler of the world. And that's what he wants to be. But look at verse 10. Thus saith the Lord God, It shall also come to pass that at the same time shall things come into thy mind, and thou shalt think an evil thought. And thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates, to take a spoil and to take a prey, to turn thy hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited, and the people that are gathered out of the nations, which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the midst of the land. And the critics, both outside and sadly also inside our community point to those verses and say look at that Israel have never dwelt safely they're building fences they're building iron dome missile shields because they're under threat from their Arab enemies and others they're not living in a land of unwalled villages they're not at rest they don't dwell safely as one young man who has left our community sadly said, prophecy is a joke. Any supposed fulfilments are just a coincidence. It just so happens that the Jews have gone back to the land. And these sort of things are being thrown at us on the internet. The word of God is trying us. Do we believe it? Has Joseph believed his dreams? Or do we stand in doubt? 
Well, just have a look at what Ezekiel 38 says. We've already identified Rosh and Meshach and Tubal. There in verse 5 is Persia, the most strange bedfellow with Russia. Russia, Eastern Orthodox, and Persia, Shiite Muslim, Iran, Shiite Muslim. Yet they are allies, close allies, on many fronts. Verse 12, to take a spoil and to take a prey. Fifty years ago, the brethren were scratching their heads and saying, well, what, what could this spoil be? Now Israel has discovered vast reserves of oil and gas. They reckon the oil reserves are equivalent to Saudi Arabia. And Mr. Putin wants all those energy reserves. Verse 13, Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all the young lions are there in the south, in the Persian Gulf. The attacks that the Americans are launching upon the ISIS forces probably at this moment some of them are coming from the carrier George H.W. Bush which is sailing in the waters of the Persian Gulf right down in that area of Sheba and Dedan <coughs> merchants of Tarshish are down there they are Sunni Muslims some of them have been backing Israel in its war against Hamas the parties are lined up exactly as Ezekiel 38 prophesied this cannot be a coincidence. There's too many details that fit. And each of those details has come to pass in the outworking of God's purpose. Some of them within the last ten years. So Israel will dwell safely. It will happen. Just as Joseph's deliverance from prison happened. But of course it may not happen until, we're after, until after we are called away to the judgment seat of Christ. <coughs> that may well be the next event. So are we ready? When the prison door was opened, Joseph was ready to go to Pharaoh. And he had his words. And he taught Pharaoh about his God. Are we ready? When the call comes to come out of this prison house of this mortal life and go to meet our Lord. Let's go back again to Genesis 37. And look at another aspect now of the life of Joseph, in which he provides a tremendous exhortation for us. In Genesis 37, we read at the beginning of the chapter about the family of Jacob. Verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhar and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought to their father their evil report. Now I don't believe for a moment that Joseph was a precocious teenager who told tales on his older brothers. Those other boys were evil. <coughs> Verse 20. They were part of that consultation which said, Come now therefore and let us slay him and cast him into some pit and we shall see what will become of his dreams. They thought they could frustrate the purpose of God. That's how ungodly they were. If we kill him, his dreams can't be fulfilled. Easy, isn't it? That was the nature of those brothers. Verse 3, Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colours. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him, and could not say shalom to him. The, the Hebrew greeting. They couldn't utter it to him. 
And Joseph dreamed a dream. And he told it his brethren, and their hatred Joseph. That's the literal Hebrew. His name means the increaser. And their hatred of him increased because of his dream. And the dream was of earthly things. Stalks of corn growing in the field. Harvested. Bound into sheaves. And eleven sheaves stood around the one. And bowed <coughs> to the earth before it. Nobody needed God to interpret that dream. Not in that family. The brothers knew that that dream meant that in this life they would bow to their younger brother. And his brethren, verse 8, said to him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us? Shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And their hatred Joseph yet the more for his dreams and for his words. I've only been told of one dream so far. Do you notice the word dreams is plural there in verse 8? They have more than two. And then the second dream in verse 9. Not the second that we're told about. He dreamed yet another dream and told it his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. He told it to his father and his brethren. His father rebuked him because his father understood the meaning of the dream. What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee to the earth? first dream was of earthly things. This dream is of heavenly things. They that turn many to righteousness shall shine as the stars forever and ever. And Joseph will want to be one of the brighter stars in that firmament. And in the kingdom, his father and his mother, who at this point in time was dead, and all of his brothers will bow down to him. That second dream told Joseph at age 17 that he would be in the kingdom. I, I don't know of any other 17-year-old in the whole of the Old Testament who knew that he would be in the kingdom. But it told him more than that. It told him that God was seeking to save his evil brothers. And from that moment on, that became his life's work. To save his brothers. So when in verse 13 Israel said to Joseph, Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem. Come and I will send thee to them. He went. There were lions and bears loose in the country at that time. We, we know that from other scriptures. There were Canaanites around, wicked and bloodthirsty people. Joseph went alone through the midst of them all because he said, I seek my brethren. And he wasn't just looking for them to find them. He was seeking their salvation. And notice he says in verse 16, I seek my brethren. <laughs> Look what they say about him. In verse 32, they brought the coat to Jacob and they said, This have we found. Know now whether it be thy son's coat or no. Not our brother. Oh no, we don't count him. It's one of us. He's your son. There's the difference. So they plotted to kill him. And then they sold him. What did they do with the money? Couldn't tell Jacob they got it. I wonder what they spent it on. Verse 34, And Jacob rent his clothes, and put sackcloth upon his loins, and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I will go down into the grave unto my son mourning. Thus his father wept for, them, for him. 
And that grief was constantly before the brothers. And any one of them could have assuaged their father's grief by going and admitting what they had done. But they were too proud. They were too evil. Although they had caused his grief, they could not, they would not assuage it. So how do we behave towards our brethren? Turn with me to the first epistle of John in chapter 4. We've got this tremendous contrast in the record in Genesis between Joseph's attitude to them and their attitude to him. First epistle of John chapter 4 and verse 20. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. So how do we show our love for our brothers? Are we working to seek our brethren? To help them on the way to the tree of life? They probably don't want to kill us. So really we have no reason at all not to seek their good. How much time do we spend thinking about the needs of our brothers and sisters and how we as individuals can do something towards helping them in those needs? How much time do we spend praying for our brothers and sisters in their various circumstances? The whole life of Joseph from that point on was dedicated to seeking and saving his brothers. So let's look how he did it. Back to Genesis and chapter 41. Pharaoh has appointed Joseph in charge of all Egypt. In verse 46 of chapter 41, Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. Egypt was about 500 miles from north to south and 500 miles from east to west. That's quite some distance in a chariot. Joseph surveyed all of the land of Egypt to assess what it could produce and what he was going to do with what it did produce. Verse 47, In the seven plentieth years the earth brought forth by handfuls, and he gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt, and laid up the food in the cities, the food of the field which was round about every city, laid he up in the same. He was going to keep control of all this corn. And you've got to have granaries designed to hold it. So it didn't get damp, didn't get eaten by rats, didn't deteriorate in any other way. It got to feed the world this food had. And Joseph in his head was working out two plans. One, how he was going to organise all this vast harvest so that he could, when the time came, feed the world. I count that as plan B. Plan A was how he could use these circumstances to save his brothers. So, chapter 42, verse 6. Joseph was the governor over the land, and he it was that sold to all the people of the land. So he didn't sit in Pharaoh's palace, you know, some grand room in the palace, directing operations there. He was on the front desk. You came to Egypt to buy corn, Joseph looked you in the eye and said, who are you? 
you're my brothers? No, no, okay, carry on. But of course they came. Verse 6 again. And Joseph's brethren came and bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the earth. And Joseph saw his brethren and he knew them. Verse 8 says, Joseph knew his brethren, but they knew not him. And that's a translation of Hebrew word, which back in chapter 27 is translated discern. Isaac discerned not Jacob because his hands were hairy. The same word occurs in chapter 37, where Jacob discerned Joseph's coat and said, it is my son's coat. The same word occurs in Genesis 38, where Judah discerned the pledge that Tamar had sent to him. The thing keeps just turning over, turning over. And visiting upon the next generation the errors that had been committed previously. And so now, ten of them are bowed on the floor before Joseph. And he could, of course, have just introduced himself. I'm Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. What an embarrassment for them it would have been. But first of all, he's got to ensure that they had brought forth fruits, meat for repentance. So he put them through three tests. First of all, the truth test. He knew that when they went back to their father Jacob, they must have told lies. They would not have told Jacob what they'd done with him. So he is going to verify their words, he says. Your words will be verified, proved. And if you read through chapter 42 carefully, you'll find that every word that they spoke to him and later that they spoke to Jacob was true. And Joseph could understand them. He hadn't forgotten his Hebrew. So in verse 21 of chapter 42, they said one to another, we are verily guilty concerning our brother. Oh, there's a change from chapter 37, your son. We are verily guilty concerning our brother. And that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore is this anguish, same word in the Hebrew, come upon us. And they saw a direct reciprocity, what they had done to him and what was now being done to them. And Reuben answered them, saying, Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child, and he would not hear. Therefore, behold, also his blood is required. And Joseph understood every word. And he knew now that their evil deed was on their conscience and troubling them. So he puts them to the money test. Verse 25, Joseph commanded to fill their sacks with corn and to restore every man's money into his sack and give them provision for the way. And when they opened their sacks and found the money, how did they respond? Not like they did when they sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites, put the money in their pockets. Verse 27, as one of them opened his sack to give his ass provender in the inn, he espied his money and behold it was in the sack's mouth. And he said to his brethren, my money is restored, though it's even in my sack. And their heart failed them. And they were afraid, saying one to another, What is this that God hath done unto us? So you see, there's now spiritual dimension in the minds of these brothers. Joseph is seeking to bring that out. And we've read the words that uh, they say to his servant and the words of his servant to them in chapter 43. And Joseph would soon know that. The servant would report back to Joseph exactly what the brothers had said about the money. So Joseph knew that they passed the money test. And so finally he sets up the Benjamin test. He sets up a repeat of the situation of 22 years previously 
where they can now leave Benjamin as a slave in Egypt and go back to their father loaded with food and live happily ever after without either of the sons of Rachel in the family. Chapter 44, verse 14. Judah and his brethren came to Joseph's house, for he was yet there, and they fell before him on the ground. Now the first dream is fulfilled. But it's Judah and his brethren. And of course when Joseph was in the pit, he was listening to the conversation of his brothers up above. And he heard Judah. He heard what Judah said. <coughs> What profit is there if we kill him? Let's sell him to these merchants. And Joseph knew that it was Judah who had instigated selling him as a slave into Egypt. And now out of the eleven bowed on the ground came forth that very brother and stood before him. Notice the words in verse 14. They fell before him on the ground. You can imagine all 11 of them bowed down in a semicircle before him. But then verse 18 says, Then Judah came near unto him and said, And Judah gets up from the floor and he comes and he stands before Joseph and they're almost eyeball to eyeball. And Joseph knows this is the one. What's Judah going to say? You go through Judah's words there in verse 44. Eight times he calls Joseph my Lord. Seven times he calls Jacob my father. <coughs> and he knows now how much he had grieved his father 22 years before when he came to him with Joseph's coat. And he will not do the same again with Benjamin. Take me, he says. I'll bear the blame to my father forever. Let thy servant, verse 33, abide instead of the lad, a bondman to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brethren. For how shall I go up to my father, and the lad not be with me, lest peradventure I shall see the evil that shall come on my father. And that's all that Joseph wanted, to know that they loved their father. He didn't want a confession of what they'd done to him. He wanted to know that they loved the father. He sought them, and he's found them. They are changed men. And so he cries in chapter 45 verse 1. Cause every man to go out from me. And he wept aloud. And Joseph said unto his brethren. I am Joseph. Doth my father yet live? Come near unto me. I am Joseph your brother. Whom ye sold into Egypt. And we've read before that he says it was all of God. It was God's purpose to save life. Not just to save life from the death by famine, but to save life eternally that they might be in his kingdom. That that second dream might ultimately be fulfilled in the mercy of God. Joseph is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Eight times in the record he weeps. It was hard. He wanted from the very beginning to say to his brothers, I am Joseph, go and fetch my father. But he knew that he could not enjoy the company of his father until he had first redeemed his brethren. That's an exact parallel with the Lord Jesus Christ, who couldn't go to the father until after he had offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. 
So what about us, brothers and sisters? Seeking our brethren and helping them to the kingdom may not be easy. It may cause us much grief of mind, much effort of body. It may cost us this world's goods. Joseph's first dream was fulfilled. And the second one will be just as certainly. The whole family will bow to Joseph and say, You saved us. If someone for whom we have laboured to turn from the wrong way to the right way said that to us in the kingdom, wouldn't it be worth all the effort? Joseph in his work of saving his brethren, typed the Lord Jesus Christ. So, as we shall see next week, brethren, can we? young people. Last week we looked at Joseph the man and some of the exhortations that Joseph has for us from his life. This week we're going to look at Joseph as a type. Before we do I want us to just think for a minute or two about what scripture says about types. And we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 12 where Jesus is in discussion with the scribes and the Pharisees. So Matthew chapter 12 and verse 38. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and an adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. There shall no sign be given it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jonah's experience in the belly of the whale was a figure, was a prophecy, was a foreshadowing, was a type of Jesus in the tomb. And we can look through the Old Testament and we can find many, many more examples like that. Uh, and I believe that Joseph is the supreme one of all, of all of them. But we need to bear in mind that not all the details correspond. So just ask yourself the question, why was Jonah in the belly of the whale? And the answer is that he'd fled west to Tarshish instead of going east to Assyria to preach the gospel that God had given to him. In other words, Jonah was disobedient to God. Jesus was in the tomb for three days and three nights because he was obedient. He had done all that God commanded him, including offering his life as a sacrifice for sin. So, so not all the details fit, but some certainly do. So we can study types. We can find some character or some incident in the Old Testament and look at it and see Christ. And we can start writing down the parallels. So far I've got over 200 of Joseph. Um, I've brought some copies with me. There's a few copies on the platform for those who don't have internet access. 
Brother Stuart will have the electronic version, so if you have got internet, then talk to Brother Stuart and get a copy. I've also found 60 in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel in the lion's den, and nearly 30 in 1 Samuel 15, 16, 17, where David flees from Jerusalem, paralleling Jesus leaving the upper room with his disciples. So we can compile quite a lot of lists of parallels from the Old Testament to the life of Christ. But what's the profit of that? You know, what, what good does that do us spiritually? Well, first of all, hopefully, it increases our, our appreciation of the inspiration of Scripture. You know, that it was one mind which caused these things to be written concerning Joseph and recorded things concerning Christ, as we shall see later, with precisely the same words. And that's good, because the inspiration of Scripture, which is our foundation principle in our statement of faith, is under attack at the moment. We're being told the Bible's full of mistakes and errors. Can't be the Word of God at all. So it's good from that point of view. We might also ponder how Jesus would have felt when he read these chapters in what we call the book of Genesis and read through the life of Joseph and saw himself there and knew that God had delivered Joseph from all his afflictions, made him ruler over all Egypt and all his brethren bowed down to him. I think that would be a great strength and comfort to the Lord Jesus Christ in the days of his flesh. But his father had cared for Joseph and his father would care for him probably good for us as well to see how God has cared for these faithful men and women in time past. But there are other aspects of types. Turn with me now to Acts chapter 7, to Stephen's speech. See, Jesus said that Jonah was a sign unto the Ninevites. It's the Greek word semion. But in Acts chapter 7, we have the Greek word tupos, which is translated types later on as we shall see so Acts 7 verse 44 Stephen says our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he had appointed speaking unto Moses that he should make it according to the fashion the type that he had seen now turn on to Hebrews chapter 8 where we have the same word in a similar context Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5. The Apostles writing about the, the things under the law of the priests. Hebrews 8 verse 5. Who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, said he, that thou make all things according to the pattern, the type, showed to thee in the mount. So the tabernacle was a, a prophecy, it was a foreshadowing, it was a type of something which Moses had in effect seen in the heavens. And the Apostle will expand more of that in chapter 9. Now turn back a few pages to 1 Corinthians 10. And the subject becomes a lot more relevant, a lot more focused. Hebrews chapter 10, sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptised unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. 
And I guess that if we were writing an account of Israel leaving Egypt and going through the Red Sea, we probably wouldn't have used the word baptism in that context. Verse 3, they did all eat the same spiritual meat, and they did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ, says the Apostle. Now, he says in verse 6, these things were our examples, our types, to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And he goes on in the next verses to list four of the evil things that they did lust after. And then he writes in verse 11. Now all these things happened unto them, them for in samples, margin, types, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the age are come. So Israel in the wilderness are types of us. So we generally think of types as being types of Jesus. But here we have the people in the wilderness are types of us. They are a prophecy. They are a foreshadowing of our journey through the wilderness of life. Now turn over to chapter 11 and verse 1. The apostle says, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Some of the more modern versions translate that as imitators. The Greek word is actually the word from which we get our word mimic. And that's what the Apostle Paul was seeking to do. He was seeking to mimic, to imitate in his life the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now go to 1 Timothy 4. And let's take it a stage further. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12. Paul writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example, a type of the believers, in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. In all these things, you show to the believers in your life what the life is really all about, how Christ lived, how God wants us all to live. And <coughs> Titus also. Titus chapter 2 and verse 7. In all things showing thyself a pattern, a type. Same word as was used of the tabernacle. Being a pattern of the things in the heavens. So Titus was to be a pattern of heavenly things, of the spiritual life being a pattern of good works in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity. So both of these young men, Timothy and Titus, were to be types in the Ecclesia. They were to show to the Ecclesia what Christ's life was really like. So we need to ask the question, well, is that what we're doing? See, Jesus said to Philip, He who hath seen me hath seen the Father. Because the words that he spoke were the Father's words. The things that he did were what the, the Father willed to be, do, to be done. And when we look at the life of Joseph, as we're going to now, we can see Christ in him. He was seen Joseph, in a sense, as seen Christ. But can we see ourselves in Joseph? We should be able to, if we are imitators of Christ. So yes, Joseph is magnificently a type of Christ. But is he a type of us? 
should be. And if he isn't, fault's not with him, it's with us. So that's what we're going to do this evening. We're going to look at Joseph, we're going to see Christ, and hopefully we're going to see ourselves. Bring out some of the amazing ways in which Joseph was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, and hopefully is a type of us. So, let's begin in Genesis 37, where the account of Joseph starts. Um, if we just, sort of an overall look at Joseph, um, both Joseph and Jesus were firstborn sons of their mothers. Both of them spent time in Egypt. Both of them were hated by their brethren. Genesis 37 verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children, because he was the son of his old age. And in Matthew 3 verse 17, God says, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. <coughs> Do we think that in our lives, we are giving God cause to love us? We are his adopted sons, not his begotten son. But are we giving him cause in the things that we do and say and think to love us? Genesis 37 verse 8. And his brethren said unto him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us? Or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. In John chapter 10, we read that the Jews took up stones to stone Jesus. And Jesus said, I've done many good works. For which of those works do you stone me? And they said, for a good work we stone thee not. But for blasphemy, your words. Because thou being a man, makest thyself God. So they hated Jesus for his words. Do men hate us because we speak the truth? Jesus said, marvel not if the world hates you. We should expect it to. If we uphold the standards of the truth in our lives and in our speech. But you see, there's, there's a movement afoot at the moment to dilute our beliefs with the thinking of the world. So that by not taking the first 11 chapters of the Bible literally, we can sort of go along with world opinion while, while maintaining... Or hoping to our moral standards. So we can be liked by people in the world and not have to stand against them because that's uncomfortable to the flesh. Now, in these dreams of Joseph, particularly in the second one, or the, well, taking these dreams together, in the first one, things which were of the earth earthy bowed down to him, the sheaves of corn. In the second one, it's heavenly things. The sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And in Philippians chapter 2, the apostle says that all things in heaven and in earth will bow to Christ. Genesis 37 verse 13. And Israel said unto Joseph, Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem. Come, and I will send thee unto them. And he said to him, Here am I. And he's going to make a journey through bear country, through lion country, through bandit country, through the Canaanites, to brothers whom he knew hated him. And he said, here am I. And 
he goes. The Lord Jesus Christ <coughs> knew from very early age what lay before him. But quoting Psalm 40, he said, Lo, I come to do thy will, O my God. Is that our attitude? Even though what lies before us may be hard, may be difficult, may be uncomfortable for our flesh, did we seek to do the will of our Father, as Joseph did? And when he got there, chapter 37, verse 16, he said to the man, I seek my brethren. Tell me, I pray thee, where they feed their flocks. And he wasn't just seeking them geographically. He was seeking them spiritually. Just as the Son of Man in Luke 19 and verse 10 came to seek and to save that which is lost. So turn the focus on ourselves. How much seeking, including praying for, lost brothers and sisters are we doing? How much more could we do if we really put our minds to it? This seeking of his brethren occupied a tremendous amount of Joseph's thinking and his life until he had achieved it, as we shall see as we go through. Their reaction, of course, in verse 18 of chapter 39 was of chapter 37 was that when they saw him afar off even before he came near unto them they conspired against him to slay him and if we look at Matthew 27 verse 1 when Jesus when Judas went to the chief priests and the collusion which clearly took place between those chief priests and Pilate and add in Acts chapter 4 where the disciples say, Against thy holy child Jesus, both the Jews and the Gentiles and Herod and Pontius Pilate were gathered together. It was all a great conspiracy to get rid of this man. And Joseph's brothers prefigure and prophesy all of that. But of course Joseph was not killed by his brethren. Jesus was. But he was taken into Egypt. And if we just move back in time, there was an occasion when Jesus was not killed by Herod, but was taken into Egypt. And, as we saw last week, when he was in Egypt, Genesis 39 verse 2, Yahweh was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of the Egyptian. And in John chapter 16 and verse 32, Jesus said, The Father is with me, and he was. So verse 3 of Genesis 39, And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. Turn to Isaiah 53 and see how that language is picked up. In that wonderful chapter that the Jews don't read in their synagogue, because it points so clearly to Jesus of Nazareth, the one whom they still reject as their Messiah. So Isaiah 53 and verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That's the very phrase from Genesis chapter 39 verse 3. Where Yahweh made all that Joseph did to prosper in his hand. And in verse 6 of Genesis 39, Joseph kept all that was committed unto him. 
His master knew not all that he had, save the bread that he did eat. And the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 1 says that the Lord is able to keep all that we have committed to him. So how are we doing, brothers and sisters, at keeping the things that he has committed to us? Moving down now to Genesis 39 and verse 10. Potiphar's wife has said to him, come and lie with me. Verse 10 of Genesis 39, it came to pass as she spake to Joseph day by day, but he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. Day by day she spake to him. Jesus was tempted every day. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And we, brothers and sisters, likewise are tempted every day. Do we take the sort of measures that, that Joseph took? You know, he was very careful that he wouldn't listen to her. He wouldn't be with her. And the implication of verse 11 is he, he tried to make sure that there were other men around him when she was around. So that she couldn't work out her designs upon him. You know, he did practical things to make sure that he didn't fall to this temptation. And that's a lesson for all of us. So both Joseph and Jesus were falsely accused. Both were silent against that accusation. And in both cases, two malefactors were involved. Genesis 40 and verse 1, It came to pass after these things that the butler and the, of the king of Egypt and his baker had offended their lord, the king of Egypt. And the two of them were put in the prison where Joseph was. When the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, there were two malefactors crucified, one either side of him. And there's bread and wine involved, isn't there? Because you've got a butler and a baker. And one of them died, and the other one lived, just as it was with Jesus. The one on the one side continued to rail on him until he expired. The other one, Jesus said, today thou shalt be with me in paradise, because he believed. And they were put in the charge of Joseph. And in verse 6 of Genesis chapter 40, Joseph came unto them in the morning and looked upon them, and behold, they were sad. And he asked Pharaoh's officers that were with him in the ward of his Lord's house, saying, Wherefore look ye so sad today, so sadly today? Joseph was concerned about them. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24. And we'll see the parallelism in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in Luke chapter 24, we read of two of Jesus' disciples who went on a journey to a village called Emmaus, which is about 60 furlongs from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass, verse 15 of Luke 24, that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another, as ye walk and are sad? So he found two downcast people, just as Joseph did. 
and both Jesus and Joseph were active in, in teaching these people the things of God. So how are we doing looking around us for those who are sad and downcast that we might lift them up and encourage them in the truth. Just look at the reaction of these two on the road to Emmaus. Verse 32 of Luke 24. Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way? While he opened to us the scriptures? Could we have that effect on a brother or sister who's feeling down because of the circumstances of their life? We saw last week when we looked at the way that Joseph was always talking about his God. In Genesis 40 and verse 8, they said unto him, We have dreamed a dream, and there is no interpreter of it. And Joseph said unto them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me them, I pray thee. And the Lord Jesus Christ in, in John 5 said, I can of mine own self do nothing. The Father has given to me that I speak. And he will show me greater works than these, that ye may marvel. So as Jesus went through his ministry, the Father revealed to him the things that he should do and gave him the power to do them. And we need to recognise that we are nothing. It's God's word that has the power to change lives and it's God's work that we should be doing. Let's go again to Psalm 105. We looked at this wonderful psalm last week. We noted that Psalms 104, 105, 106 are a commentary on the whole of the Old Testament, an inspired commentary, revealing things which we don't read in the historical record. So in Psalm 105 and verse 20, having seen last week that Joseph's feet were hurt with fetters and he was laid in iron and how the word of the Lord tried him, then we read in verse 20 of Psalm 105, The king sent and loosed him, even the ruler of the people, and let him go free. In Acts 2 verse 24, Peter says that God loosed the pains of death, that Jesus should not be holden of them. And when Joseph gets into the presence of Pharaoh in Genesis 41 and verse 38, Pharaoh said unto his servants, can we find such an one as this is? A man in whom the Spirit of God is. And Peter in the House of Cornelius explains how God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and how he went around about doing miracles. And Pharaoh's testimony concerning Joseph, we read in Genesis 41 verse 39, Pharaoh said unto Joseph, For as much as God hath showed thee all this, there is none so discreet and wise as thou art. And the Lord Jesus Christ exhorts us to be faithful and wise servants. Joseph was, was faithful in all things. And his wisdom is manifest in this chapter as he plans out the work of the first seven years to gather in all the food that's going to feed the world for the next seven years. He was a faithful and a wise servant, as, of course, supremely was the Lord Jesus Christ. So are we serving faithfully and wisely?
We want to know how to do it. Look at the context of Jesus' statement in Matthew 25, where he tells a parable about faithful and unfaithful virgins. And then another parable about wise and foolish servants. There's much for us to learn in those things. In Genesis 41 and verse 40, Pharaoh says, Only in the throne will I be greater than thou. And 1 Corinthians 15, 28 tells us of the time when Jesus will hand back the kingdom to God, that God may be all and in all, that the Son may be subject unto the Father in all things, just as Joseph was to Pharaoh. So in Genesis 42, we have the record of the brothers coming down to Joseph. And he spoke roughly to them. He took them for spies. He interrogated them. He put them in prison. Notice in Genesis 42 and verse 17, it says, He put them all together into ward three days. The margin says Hebrew gathered. I don't fully understand this. If anybody can help afterwards, please do. But I believe there's something here that relates to the first dream. You know, the gathering of the stalks of corn and the, the making of sheaves related to of course the whole of this circumstance about corn in Egypt is related to that first dream of harvesting corn so he put them in the ward three days and he lets them out and he said right which of you is going to go back to your father and fetch your younger brother and none of them come forward because they all know that Jacob won't trust Benjamin with any of them And they say in verse 21, we are verily guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore is this anguish come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Spake not I unto thee, saying, Do not sin against the child, and ye would not hear. Therefore also, behold, his blood is required. And they knew not that Joseph understood them. That's at two levels. He hadn't forgotten his Hebrew. So he could follow that conversation. But he also understood the state of their minds. If we go to Isaiah chapter 11, we'll find that that's exactly what is foretold of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 11. And verse 2, we've already read that Pharaoh said, we can't find a better man than this because the Spirit of God is in him. So Isaiah 11 verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. Exactly what Joseph did with his brothers. And through that process, he brought them to salvation. Jesus, of course, knew what was in men, as the Gospel said. He didn't need anyone to testify of men. 
we don't have that insight by the power of the Spirit that he had. But what we do have are these scriptures in which we find time and again God's verdicts upon what is right and what is wrong. So we should have a level of understanding which is greater than the people around us in the world. And we should be applying that in our dealings with others. Because we know what's right. We know what's pleasing to God. And we know what he hates. And our attitudes should be the same. Let's move on now to Genesis 44. Where they've come down the second time with Benjamin. And Joseph's cup's been hidden in Benjamin's sack. And Joseph's servant comes out to pursue them and interrogate them and say, where is it? And their response in Genesis 44 verse 9. With whomsoever of thy servants it be found, both let him die and we also will be thy Lord's bondmen. And the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 6. To whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are. And the New Testament makes it quite clear that we are bondmen. But we are not to be the servants of sin. We have to present our bodies as a living sacrifice unto God, which is a reasonable, our reasonable service. And be, as the Apostle Paul was, bond slaves to Christ. And so at the beginning of chapter 45, Joseph reveals himself to his brethren. And of course, in terms of Jesus and his brethren, that's still to come. We moved into the future in terms of the, the antitype. They have yet to look upon him whom they pierced and mourned for him. But this, the early verses of this chapter foreshadow that in the life of Joseph and his brothers. And they're terrified. But Joseph comforts them and he tells them that there's more famine to come yet. And he says in verse 11, you go into the land of Goshen, Genesis 45 verse 11, and there will I nourish thee, for there are yet five years of famine, lest thou and thy household and all that thou hast come to poverty. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, he that cometh to me will never hunger. So when brothers and sisters, young people come to us, do we feed them with the milk of the world or the strong meat according as they're able to bear it? That's our responsibility to one another, to nourish. So in chapter 47, Joseph sends five of his brethren, what is your occupation? And they said unto Pharaoh, thy servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And of course the Lord Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. And Peter in his first epistle, chapter 5, says to the elders, feed the flock of God. So we each have a responsibility of shepherding within the ecclesia, within the household of faith. Are we performing it? Even the young ones. I heard of an ecclesia which was trying to sort out which of the younger brethren um, ought to be asked to exhort on a Sunday. 
and it was pointed out to the arranging brethren that one young brother, every time he came into the ecclesia and his Bible was open, had a group of young people around him. He was instructing them. He's the sort of brother, he said, that you want on the platform. We can all undertake this role in some degree. So the famine got harsher and harsher. And in Genesis 47 and verse 18, when that year was ended, the Egyptians came to Joseph the second year and said unto him, We will not hide it from my Lord, how that our money is spent. My Lord hath also our herds of cattle. There is not aught left in the sight of my Lord, but our bodies and our lands. And that's where we are, brothers and sisters. <coughs> we have to present our bodies as living sacrifices unto God. Because that's what the Lord Jesus Christ did. Because the context of that passage in Hebrews 10 is, I come, of, I come to do thy will, O God, is a body hast thou prepared me. And he offered that body, as we've read in Isaiah 53, as a sacrifice for sin. And Hebrews 10 continues that we are sanctified. We are made holy by the offering of the body of Jesus once. We have nothing in this world but the things that God has given us. And what he seeks is that we give ourselves to him, as Joseph did and as Jesus did. Let's go now finally to Genesis chapter 49. To Jacob's blessing upon Joseph. Some of the brothers got very, very short words from Jacob. But not Joseph. Genesis 49 verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bough. Even a fruitful bough by a well whose branches run over the wall. Jesus said, I am the true vine. You see, it's all about bearing fruit. The very first thing that God said to Adam and Eve was, be fruitful. And he did not mean have lots of children. Because he said, be fruitful and multiply. And you get to Genesis chapter 6 verse 1. And men began to multiply upon the face of the earth. And God determined to destroy the lot. Because there was no fruit. They'd heeded the second commandment. They'd multiplied, but there was no fruit. So right through scripture. From Genesis 1.28. Through John 15. Herein is my father glorified. That she bring forth much fruit. And on into the book of Revelation. God has declared. That this is what he wants from us. So are we producing fruit? Is the Lord going to say. Of us at the judgment. He she is a fruitful bough. Genesis 49 verse 24. But his bow abode in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Joseph was the shepherd. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 20. And we'll see what it says about Jesus as a shepherd. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 20. 
Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. This is a tremendous verse. Just on a doctrinal point, those words there, through the blood, occur in eight other New Testament passages. Greek words for through and blood. And if you look at those eight passages, it is very clear that the meaning of it is, is that by means of that blood, so and so and so and so happened. Absolutely clear. So translate it back into Hebrews 13 verse 20. It was because he offered that sacrifice, because he died that death, that God raised him from the dead. If he died any other death, it would not have met the Father's requirements. He had to die that death. He had to shed his blood as a sacrifice for sin and to bring in the new covenant. But because he did that, this great shepherd of the sheep, as he is called, is brought forth that he might do that work of shepherding during his millennial reign. Because that's what Psalm 2 says that he will do. And we've already considered 1 Peter 5 verse 2. The elders which are among you I exhort. Feed the flock of God. And that's a very serious responsibility. Particularly upon the elders in the Ecclesia. To encourage and help and sustain our young people. And our young brothers and sisters. And our children. Against the dangers and pressures of this world. You may have noticed in Genesis 49 and verse 24 that Joseph is also called the stone of Israel, as was the Lord Jesus Christ. We come down now to Genesis 49 and verse 26. The blessings of thy father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors unto the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him that was a Nazarite from his brethren. That's the first occurrence in the Hebrew Bible of the word Nazarite. Translated here separate because that's what it means. Joseph was separate from his brethren. Now there are three Greek words that are translated in the New Testament as separate, separating, separated, etc. So only one of them is ever used of the Lord Jesus Christ, and only in one passage. So just turn back a page or two to Hebrews chapter 7. Here's the testimony of the Apostle concerning Jesus. Joseph was separate from his brethren. He was a Nazarite from his brethren. Here's the testimony concerning Jesus. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 26. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. And this was a great problem to the scribes and Pharisees, because they just did not believe that Jesus was separate from sinners. This man receiveth sins and sinners and eateth with them. 
This man, if he were a prophet, would know what manner of man, woman she is who touches him, because she is a sinner. And Simon the Pharisee didn't even want her in his house, let alone for her to touch him. But you see, Jesus was spiritually separated. He mixed with them. He went into their houses. He ate with them. But he never once condoned their behaviour. To the woman taken in adultery, he said, I don't condemn you. Don't do it again. Go and sin no more. To the man whom he healed on the Sabbath, he said, Go thy way. That's the worst thing, and that's the worst thing before thee. John, John chapter 5. I've forgotten the quote. Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon thee. You see, Jesus was separate. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. But he understood what the problem was. And he sought to help and encourage others up to his level. So we, brothers and sisters, also need to understand what spiritual separation is, as illustrated in the lives of Joseph and of Jesus, and seek to practice it in our lives, that we might help to do what they did. Joseph saved his brethren. Jesus has provided the means whereby many should come to salvation. Turn with me finally to Acts 7 again. little clue in Acts 7. Acts 7 is another of those inspired commentaries on the Old Testament, which Stephen, by the Spirit, tells us a number of things that we don't read in the Old Testament history. So, Acts 7, verse 14. Then sent Joseph, and called his father Jacob to him, and all his kindred, threescore and fifteen souls, so Jacob went down into Egypt and died, he and our fathers, and were carried over into Shechem, and laid in the sepulchre that Abram bought for a sum of money of the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Now, Jacob wasn't buried in Shechem. Jacob was buried in Hebron, in the cave of Machpelah, as he commanded his sons in, in Genesis 50. So the and were at the beginning of Acts 7 verse 16 doesn't refer to Jacob. It refers to the our fathers at the end of verse 15. We could read, Jacob died, he and our fathers, and they were carried over into Shechem, and laid in the sepulchre that Abraham bought of the sons of money, a sum of money of the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. And we know from the end of the book of Joshua that's where Joseph was buried. The bones of Joseph, which they took out of Egypt and carried through the wilderness and brought into the land, were buried in Shechem in the portion of land that Jacob gave to Joseph. And Stephen's telling us that all of his <coughs> eleven brothers were buried in the same sepulchre. So on Resurrection Day, they'll all rise together, all twelve of them. And eleven of them will look at Joseph and say... You've saved us. You've got us here. Because he sought his brethren. 
Would it be wonderful, brothers and sisters, we were standing at the judgment seat and somebody came alongside us and said, you got me here. 